0: This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grace can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay Z. Farm so hard, What's let's get, good, Jim let's get, get paid. Jim Pruitt, and I bring you another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. I have probably the best show that every single one of you are going to love. This is going to be the most downloaded episode, the most requested topic that I've been getting across the board. We're talking about Bankelson, Vank, and Zosin, and its association with acute kidney injury. But again, I'm not going to sit here and talk about something I have an expert on, and this is going to be just really cool to be able to go straight from the bedside to talking about things from a literature standpoint. I have Todd Miano, and he has been super gracious to bless us with his time. But let me give you a little bit of background before we jump into the show again, because again, when we have a huge expert like this, I want to tell you guys more about him. So, Dr. Miano is a critical care pharmacist at the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania and an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Perlman School of Medicine. He is also a fellow of the uh, American College of Critical Care Medicine, international editor of the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology and associate editor of the BMC Pharmacology and Toxicology. Dr. Miao's interest reaches increased uh, leverage in economic health record data to study drug safety and uh, comparison efficacy in critically ill populations, and his work seems to understand drug effect. Uh, heterogeneity and quantify the impacts of variable responses of outcomes. So again, I mentioned a few things there, but can you th- give us a little bit more about uh, your hometown, residency, and fellowship? And again, thank you for coming onto the show.
1: Uh, sure, and uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited for the opportunity to talk about um, you know our work and and this topic um I am originally from a very small town uh, Dungannon Virginia, in rural uh southwestern virginia population of about three hundred uh individuals um we didn't even have a, a a stoplight uh in the town um uh so um I went to residency at virginia Con- uh pharmacy school at virginia Commonwealth university uh in richmond uh did residency at Wake Forest uh, Baptist uh, Medical Center, uh, both my PGY-1 and then PGY-2 in critical care. Um, And then I practiced as a um, critical care pharmacy specialist at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania um, in Philadelphia and uh, in the surgical intensive care unit and did that for about six or seven years before Um, doing a research fellowship and getting a master's in clinical epidemiology from the University of Pennsylvania and then went on to do a uh, complete a a doctoral degree in epidemiology um, and uh, just started as an assistant professor um, here um, still at Penn. Yeah, so I think that covers it.
0: Yeah, you pretty much hit all all the things and I'm gonna go ahead and jump right into this. So I want to talk about Again, we've all heard about vancomycin and pipercillin hazobactam. I'm going to call it zosin from now on. I know people hate doing it, but I like to call it vanxosin. It's causing AKI in the past. Uh, What is the proposed mechanism of this nephrotoxicity?
1: So that's a great question. And I think that is the the crux of the entire story and, you know, the motivation for our paper. Um, So. Um, there, there has never really been a, a mechanism uh, or perhaps a really plausible mechanism um, postulated. Uh, so obviously, vancomycin is nephrotoxic, um, can cause acute tubular necrosis through um, oxidative uh, stress um, and uh, cast formation, um, and, uh, and, you know, and we learn more every, every year about, you know, the nephrotoxicity of vancomycin. So it's it's clearly nephrotoxic. Piperzil and tazobactam, Piptazo, Zosin, um, on the other hand, um, you know, historically has never really been, you know, we, we had clinicians wouldn't think of Zosin as a nephrotoxic, you know, outside of, uh, acute interstitial nephritis. Um, there are certainly case reports of, that adverse effect um much like many other beta lactams um and you know the background rate of interstitial nephritis with um piptazo is probably not you know meaningfully different from other beta lactams um and so the you know some folks have postulated that perhaps that you know there's this interaction between vancomycin nephrotoxicity and and you know interstitial nephritis from back Tazibactan, but it's, you know, that was never really that compelling because a inner nephritis is uncommon enough that it, you know, it would be plausible that it would explain, you know, the strong associations seen in the, in the literature. Um, so yeah, I wish I had a better answer for you, but, but again, you know, that's part, you know, an important part of the story. So, um, as of, you know, as of today, in terms of a, a plausible mechanism of true toxicity um that's uh, an open question,
0: and that's where I really want to get to because I think sometimes we learn in pharmacy school and you know sometimes you get in, in training and you hear these same things repeated over and over that we never really go back to check and see so when we do and we don't actually find something or the incidence of these things occurring are so low, we have to ask ourselves like, hey, is this really something that we should be doing and we spoke a little bit earlier of how. I've made our sepsis guideline. I've done a few things. And one of the big motivations to avoid the combination was AKI. But again, as we commonly do now is go back and look at these things and study them. We come empty handed for the most part.
1: Yeah. And and so and you're not alone. So um, there are many institutions um, across the country and perhaps across the world that have moved away from um, from the the combination of, of Vank and Piptazo. Um, and, you know, perhaps jumping ahead a little bit, but, you know, that, that, those changes were based on the literature that has accrued around this question over the past, you know, almost a, a decade now. Um, so at this point, there have been at least 50, but, pr- you know, 50 to 75 observational studies that have linked um, the combination of peptazo with an increased risk of uh, acute kidney injury. Um, some of those studies have compared VANC uh, monotherapy versus combination therapy with VANC-Piptazo. Many other studies have compared vancomycin with Piptazo versus another beta-lactam, which is a better design because it probably does a better job of reducing confounding by indication. Uh, using many different comparators um, in many different populations, critically ill patients, non-critically ill patients, pediatrics uh, transplants, burns, trauma, you name it. Um, it has been studied and, and what's remarkable is that the, you know, the signal that, that signal is, is consistent. Um, so, you know, I, I, think I, you know, I believe that there is an association between, you know, I, I think it's a true association between, um, and, and so this is the key, this is the key point between creatinine defined acute kidney injury, and the combination of vicomycin and, and, and um And so that kind of leads into kind of the hypothesis that we tested. So, um, you know, as many of the listeners probably know, um, creatinine is is the most common biomarker that we use to monitor kidney function. Um, but it's, you know, by far, um, you know, it's far from being a perfect biomarker. So obviously, you know, steady state concentrations are um, affected by, uh, you know, other factors beyond changes in kidney function, right? So muscle changes in muscle mass, changes in diet, changes in liver function all, you know, affect the input of creatine, which is uh, metabolized to creatinine. So that complicates the interpretation of creatinine. And as pharmacists, right, we're constantly every day thinking through you know, those issues when we estimate um, kidney function. But it's also true that changes in creatinine, which we use to diagnose acute kidney injury, do not always represent changes in kidney function. And uh, and so that's, you know, that's the, uh, one of the key limitations when using creatinine to diagnose acute kidney injury. Uh, so, you know, the consensus, the cadigo consensus criteria use you know, either a, you know, at least a 50% change from baseline in creatinine to represent acute kidney injury or a change of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within 48 hours. So, a rapid, even rapid small changes can be acute kidney injury. And the assumption is that that change in creatinine is the result of change in kidney function that is the result of some underlying injury. Um, and so, uh it turns out that that that's not always the case uh so especially critically ill patients right so we often uh, patients uh, we resuscitate patients with many liters of um you know normal saline lactated ringer uh, other resuscitation fluids which have a well described um, uh dilution effect on um creatinine and, and other markers and importantly um uh, a number of drugs have been shown to impact um, creatinine concentrations uh, based on um, the fact that uh, while creatinine is is um, filtered in the, the glomerulus of the kidney, it's also secreted uh, from the blood into the lumen of the tubules um, through the organic ion- anion transporters. The OAT1, OAT3 are, are, are thought to be some of the key Transporters um, that mediate that. So, on average, about fifteen percent of creatinine clearance does not represent filtration; it represents um, secretion. Um, and and for that reason, creatinine clearance is not the same as um, glomerular filtration rate. Right. So, creatinine clearance does not equal GFR, and the reason for that is secretion. And on average, you know, the rule of thumb that we use is about 15 percent, but that varies, particularly in the setting of reduced kidney function. The the proportion of clearance due to secretion generally goes up. So in patients with chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease, secretion may account for forty up to uh, 40 percent as high as 60 percent of creatinine clearance. If drugs are given that affect tubular secretion, the magnitude of change in concentration that you would expect would be uh, magnified in patients who have, you know, a greater percentage of their clearance uh, due to secretion. Um, So creatinine is an imperfect marker of uh, kidney function and kidney injury. Um, And so that notion is what underlined the hypothesis that that we tested in this study, and that's been, you know, discussed in the literature. The notion that the combination of vancomycin and piptazo does lead to changes in creatinine, that that's a true association, but that those changes are due to effects on tubular handling uh, of, of creatinine, inhibition of tubular secretion, um, and so that's specifically the mechanism that we set out to uh, to test in in our study.
0: Perfect. So before we we get into the actual study, because I'm I'm ready for that as well. So we've mentioned quite a bit how creatinine in itself is an imperfect marker. What are some of the other markers? I think this has been something that I saw in residency. I think many institutions are starting to see the infancy of the other markers, the test for uh, kidney injury. What are some of those other markers that we can be using?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the field of AKI (laughs) biomarker research is really evolved and grown substantially over the past, um, you know, almost two decades now. And so beyond creatinine, there are a number of, um, you know, ways to monitor both kidney function and kidney injury. Uh, So obviously there's urine output, uh, which is also part of the current consensus criteria for defining acute kidney injury. Beyond uh, creatinine and urine output, there are other markers that we can measure, measure both in the blood um, and in the urine. Uh, so th- at this point, there are, there are dozens of biomarkers that have been studied. Um, some of the, the, the most commonly studied, perhaps uh, most well-known, uh, include Cystatin C. So Cystatin C is an alternative marker of kidney function. So, Cystatin C is um, uh, 100% cleared uh, through glomerular filtration and, importantly, does not undergo tubular secretion. Um, So, Cystatin C has been um, validated as a marker of kidney function Um, in 2012. The CKD-EPI group published um, GFR equations. Uh, that were based uh, either only on Cystatin-C or both on the combination of Cystatin-C and creatinine. And um, there's a, um, a, a decent-sized literature that has described the role of Cystatin-C in critical ill patients, both for estimation of kidney function and diagnosis of acute kidney injury. So Cystatin-C is a functional marker. So it, like creatinine, is not directly reflective of kidney injury. Um, and so sometimes there are changes in kidney function that don't necessarily represent kidney injury or changes in filtration. So, for example, when we give a RAS inhibitor, like an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, that causes vasodilation of the efferent arterioles, which reduces the intraglomerular pressure that drives filtration. So, you know, there's a, you know, a an acute change in kidney function but that's not really associated with actual damage to the kidneys, right? It's not changing blood flow, causing ischemia or any, any actual injury. So that, so cystatin C is, you know, advantageous in that it doesn't uh it's not subject to secretion, but again, it's not a perfect biomarker Um, and particularly relevant in critically ill patients. Cystatin C can also change in response to factors other than kidney function. So, uh, cystaten C is affected by uh, inflammation uh, and the administration of uh, corticosteroids. Uh, so both inflammation and, and corticosteroids can cause acute increases in cystaten C. Um, uh, other factors linked with changes in cystaten C have been thyroid function, um, malignancy, um, obesity. Um, so it uh, you know uh, it has advantages relative to cystaten C. Uh, relative to creatinine, but it, it's also not perfect. Now, another important thing to mention about Cystat C is it has a shorter half-life uh, relative to creatinine. So an important limitation is that, you know, on average, uh, if there's an acute change in GFR, you know, if I cut out one of my kidneys today, um, on average, it might take, you know, 12 to 48 hours for a new steady state uh, creatinine concentration to be achieved, uh, so there's this built-in delay, yeah. in uh, you know, um, and so cystatin C has a shorter half-life, and so on average, you would expect to see changes in cystatin C sooner than you would changes in creatinine. Um, so cystatin C is um, an important uh, alternative biomarker that is being used more commonly, both for estimation of kidney function and, and monitoring of kidney injury. Um, There's a whole host of other markers that um, typically are measured in the urine that are directly reflective either of kidney stress or kidney injury. So actual damage or stress to the uh, tubules um, in the kidney. Um, The cell cycle arrest markers um, are markers of kidney stress that have um, been well validated and um, are actually FDA approved for monitoring, um, uh, and particularly in the setting of trying to anticipate risk of future acute kidney injury. NGAL, Kim one are other um, markers that are uh, secreted into the urine um, in response to um, uh, you know cellular damage in the proximal tubules, um, and so many of these markers have been fairly extensively studied and have been shown to, you know, better associate with risk of, you know, downstream outcomes relative to changes in creatinine. And there are studies that have shown, you know, discordance um, between what the bio, these alternative markers are telling you and what changes in creatinine tell you. So, you know, there are patients who have changes in creatinine, but no change in the biomarker and those patients do okay Whereas you have other patients who have changes in the damage biomarker and no change in creatinine, and those patients do worse on average. Um, so, you know, the future for monitoring kidney function and, and you know, the effects of nephrotoxins, um, you know, we're still not there yet. Many of these biomarkers are still, you know, not quite ready for prime time, and a lot of them are, you know, not widely available, still very expensive relative to creatinine. So. You know, rolling the amount in large scale, there's still a lot that we need to to work out. Um, but you know, the future is monitoring kidney function with a panel of markers, um, and in select patients, using some of these alternative damage biomarkers to to suss out exactly what's going on with the kidney. Perfect.
0: All right, so let's transition to this paper. Everyone's been talking about it. It's been blowing up on on Twitter. Let's just go ahead and talk about again. We discussed it a little bit before, but what was the primary objective or aim of this paper?
1: Yeah. So, um, so the, so we came into this paper, with the hypothesis that the changes in creatinine that were associated with the combination of A. Piptazo did not reflect actual changes in kidney function or kidney injury. Um, and so, you know, how, how could we test that? Well, you know, the, the, the most direct way to test that in humans um, would be to measure an, al- an alternative uh, marker, either of kidney function or uh, of kidney injury directly. Um, and so I had the good fortune, I, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by, you know, brilliant uh, researchers um, and, uh, you know, uh, among them, Michael Shashati who's a pulmonary critical care a physician um, at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, Nula Meyer are um, two of my research mentors. Uh, Nula leads a, a prospective cohort study of sepsis called the Molecular Epidemiology of Sepsis in the ICU, or the MESI study. Um, it's a prospective study that's been enrolling patients, uh, medical ICU patients, uh, with sepsis um, uh, since 2008. And at this point, there are over 4,000 patients that have been um, enrolled. Um, And so the aims of this underlying prospective cohort study are to, as the name uh, suggests, understand the molecular epidemiology, the molecular mechanisms of acute um, organ failure in patients with sepsis. Uh, And so this study, um, uh, all patients that are enrolled have uh, blood samples taken at uh, baseline, which is the time of admission to the intensive care unit, um, uh, and then roughly 48 hours. So at baseline and at 48 hours. Um, so all these patients um, had um, uh, plasma samples available where we could measure an alternative marker, and and so um, uh, so the most validated marker in, in for kidney function outside of creatinine in in the blood is cystatin C. And so that's how kind of we, we settle on cystatin C, knowing that it's not subject to tubular secretion. And so it would allow us, so uh, so in this population, in the messy population, we identified patients um, who uh, received um, either vancomycin and piptazo or vancomycin and cefepime as the comparator. Uh, and we contrasted changes in creatinine with changes in uh, Cystatin-C. And our hypothesis was that there would be a discordance in those two biomarkers. We expected to see vanc associated with a change in creatinine, but not associated with changes in Cystatin-C.
0: Perfect. So, again, we've kind of talked about a little bit before um, in that mention there, but can we kind of describe kind of this cohort outside of when enrollment and talk about the outcomes? It's basically all your methodology kind of go through that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So in this messy cohort, which is patients with sepsis, uh, a fairly high um, baseline severity of illness. So, you know, the, the mortality in the overall cohort at 90 days is about 50 percent. Um, so high mortality risk, um, uh, population. And so we identified patients who received, you know, either of the comparator, co- uh, combinations bank with either cefepime or piptazo, who had drugs initiated, um, within 48 hours of ICU admission, um, and who received the combination for at least 48 hours, um, so that we could, you know, measure change of the biomarkers at, um, at day two. And uh, so our primary outcomes were changes in biomarkers at day two. Um, So the change from baseline to day two. And so because the timing of antibiotic initiation and the timing of the overlap between Vanco and and the beta-lactams varied around ICU admission, right? So some patients would have the antibiotics started a little before ICU admission, some a little after. Um, some would have vacomyce initiated first. Uh, others would have the beta-lactam initiated first. Um, so there wasn't, for all those reasons, there wasn't a perfect alignment of antibiotic initiation with the timing of the blood draws. Yeah. And so we had the, you know, at, so a priori we designed, you know, we specified windows of time in which, um the blood draws would be eligible for our analysis. So the blood draws had to, the baseline blood draw had to be within the 24 hour window prior to antibiotic initiation. And then the follow up blood draw had to align with the 48 hour window after, um, you know, fr- from hour 48 to hour 72 after antibiotic initiation. Um, So that the changes that we were quantifying could be plausibly related to the effects of um, antibiotic administration. So for that reason, not all patients that we were able to include had and C measurements available. So we included 739 patients. Only 192 had, you know, the timing of their blood draws in proper alignment so that we could include them in the Cystatin C analysis. So uh, an important limitation of our study is, although our overall sample size is fairly large, um, the, the sub-cohort with Cystatin C is, you know, much smaller. To try to mitigate um, or supplement those because because of that limitation… We also looked at changes in BUN as an additional secondary marker of kidney function that does not undergo tubular secretion. Uh, So BUN is far from a perfect biomarker like creatinine, and and, um, it's also affected by many other factors. Um, So its specificity for changes in kidney function um, is far from perfect. Um, But we viewed that as, you know, just an additional secondary marker, um, you know, to compare with changes in creatinine, um, you know, uh, recognizing those limitations. And then we also looked at um, some um, patient-centered outcomes that we would really, you know, hard outcomes that we would care about. If the acute kidney injury that is occurring, um, that is related to vexosin, if it's actually true kidney injury, and it's something that we care about, you might expect to be associated with downstream events that we associate with acute kidney injury, including the need for renal replacement therapy um, and mortality. So, you know, much of the reason why we care about acute kidney injury is that it's associated with these downstream outcomes that, you know, we, you know, that are, um, that patients care about. Um, so we also look at those outcomes and our, our hypothesis would be again a discordance between what we're seeing with creatinine and what we're seeing with those outcomes. We hypothesize that we would see increases in creatinine associated with fake but no association between venk and Chagent in either Cystent C or BUN or those downstream outcomes that we care about. So, so that's kind of an overview of the, the cohort and the, um, the outcomes that we looked at. Um, so it's a critically ill uh, cohort, as I mentioned, um, so high baseline severity of illness, uh, and it's an observational study. Um, so, you know, um, as you know, would be expected. There were differences in the groups that were being compared at baseline um, in terms of their, their baseline severity of illness and risk for true acute kidney injury. And in general, the Vank-Piptazo group um, at baseline was, had a higher severity of illness at baseline. And, uh, you know, they had a higher Apache 2, Apache 3 severity of illness score um, they had a lower baseline, um, kidney function. Um, and if you, you know, if you looked across many of the baseline covariates that we measured, they were, you know, they tended to trend in the direction of, um, the, the Zosin patients being a little sicker. Um, so, um, so trying to adjust for those differences in baseline risk was a key part of our, of our analysis. Um, so, um we used inverse probability of treatment weighting, which is a, a type of um, propensity score based analysis um, that um, basically a, a propensity score for receipt of big is estimated. And that propensity score, and then patients are then weighted by the inverse of that propensity score. And, and what that weighting tends to do is in the weighted population, removes associations from treatment um, and baseline risk for the outcome. So essentially it balances the distribution of the baseline confounders that we included in our analysis. Um, So that was a key part of the analysis is is the weighting to adjust for confounding. A number of the key confounders that we wanted to include were missing uh, in a lot of patients. So, you know, important. Um, lab variables, uh, in particular, uh, bilirubin uh, and albumin, are both—you know—acute um, uh, m- phase reactants, uh, markers of baseline severity of illness. Bilirubin is a marker of liver function. Both have been, you know, uh, shown as to be strong risk factors or uh, predictive of risk of acute kidney injury. Some uh, vital sign measurements, like mean arterial pressure, uh, were also missing. Um, and so we we wanted to include be able to adjust for those factors and, and account for the missingness. So we used a procedure called multiple imputation, uh, which is a way to um, basically predict what those missing values would be in a valid way. Um, so we addressed um, missing data with multiple imputations. So our analysis used the combination of inverse probability weighting and multiple imputation. So all of our, our final adjusted estimates uh, came from that, you know, multiply imputed weighted um, analyses. So I think that probably uh, and I think that covers the key aspects of the methods. Um, yeah. And the big
0: thing is now it's like we we, we talked about all these different components. And if you can give like an overview of I try when we have these kind of conversations, talk about what did this patient look like? You you mentioned they were very sick. Again, 50% mortality is, is is solid. These are very sick patients. But overall, if you had to choose like three or four things to like give a good highlight of what this patient looked like, what are some of the things that was your average patient as far as baseline characteristics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the average patient, you know, was admitted to the emergency department with sepsis, um, transferred, um, you know, directly to the intensive care unit, Um, high-dose pressors, receiving lots of fluid resuscitation, um, really, you know, really sick. Um, And, uh, you know, a a Mickey population, so a high prevalence of patients with cancer and, uh, you know, uh, cirrhosis and and liver dysfunction. Perfect.
0: All right, so we basically went through most of the background. I think this is the part that everyone wants to, to hear about. So I'm gonna put a quick little pause here before we go into it. All right, big moment here. Tell us about the results of this study.
1: Uh, Yeah. So what we hypothesized to see is is kind of how the results turned out. So when looking at change in um, biomarkers um, at day two, so the change from baseline to day two, what we saw was that um, piptazo was associated with a um, significant increase in creatinine At day two from baseline. Uh, And so we looked at that both as a continuous measure. So, you know, percentage change from baseline is a continuous measure uh, and then also a threshold change. So we looked at the incidence of a 50 percent increase in all of the biomarkers. Um, And so the uh, the uh, peptase was associated with a roughly twofold increase in the frequency of a 50 percent increase in creatinine from baseline. At 48 hours. Um, in contrast, piptazo was not associated with change in cystanten C or change in BUN. Um, in fact, both of those markers trended to be lower in the Piptazo group relative to the cefapine group. Um, and uh, the combination was also not associated with need for renal replacement therapy um, or mortality. So, you know, across all of our results, what, what we tended to see was that vanc was associated with creatinine-defined outcomes uh, and not any of the other outcomes that we looked at. And um, and so the what is driving that pattern of results, right, we didn't directly look at mechanisms, but, uh, you know, we can hypothesize that that pattern of results is consistent with the the hypothesis that we came in with that the effects of the drug combination represent isolated effects on creatinine, um, you know, uh, and, and and does not reflect actual, you know, kidney tubular damage. Perfect.
0: Now, one of the things that we noticed when we we're comparing a lot of this with, with cefepime again, as we move forward, do you see anything future looking at that? Because, again, that association may be more so the actual uh, kidney injury with the uh, cystatin C and, and BUN looks to be a little higher in the, in the Vex group. Do we see anything moving forward where we want to see whether that combination may be associated with increased actual events using those things or what, what's like the future aims for this topic? Cause again, I can see this going many
1: ways. Yeah. So, you know, we did the best job that we could to try to address this hypothesis Um But, you know, this is just a single study and it is far from perfect. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, we only had cystatin C in 192 patients. Um, So I think, you know, I think the results are important in that um, they, I I think they they really shift the balance of the evidence, you know, more towards equipoise. You know, I, I think before our study was published, most folks, took this as to be a true thing, right? I mean, many institutions, many clinicians have changed their practice to avoid using the combination. Um, You know, in fact, in in, um, last year in clinical infectious diseases, there was a study uh, published out of Vanderbilt where they, you know, implemented a stewardship um, intervention where they drastically reduced the use of of vanxosin relative to vanxethepine. Um, so uh, you know that is it's an important combination um in 2016 in fact uh, it, vancomycin and Zosin were the two most commonly used antibiotics in hospitals uh, in the united States so it's very important um you know Zosin is a workhorse for a good reason it's um, it's broad spectrum but in terms of collateral damage and uh, from a stewardship um, perspective and inducing resistance it's uh, you know, it, it has favorable uh, characteristics. There's some data that suggested it may have a lower risk of uh, C. difficile diarrhea. You know, there are other toxicities with our comparator antibiotics, um, you know, neurotoxicity and neurotoxicity, um, uh you know, and, and, and adverse collateral damage in terms of resistance. So, so, uh, you know, I think it's still an important combination that that we should have available to us. Um, and so I think our, our data suggests that the door is far from closed on, on this question. Um, so, you know, I think we need more data like ours, um, you know, looking at this question with um, biomarkers beyond, uh, you know, with, with ways to monitor the kidney in addition to creatinine. In larger populations um and um you know even in our, in our study, even though we did the best job that we could to try to address confounding at the end of the day um observational studies um uh, uh you know are can are subject to biases uh from confounding that can be you know dif- difficult to fully you know to be confident that we've removed all the confounding that is there so you know, eventually randomized studies of this question that are you know looking at alternative biomarkers, you know, might be what's needed to you know finally end the end the, the uh debate. Perfect.
0: And this is something that I think most people are gonna hear and, and sure. act okay, this is big, this is a big paradigm shift right now. So again, and I understand from when you create this, and most people who are doing great studies, they tell us, hey, limit there's tons of limitations. This is only observational, but you know, just as well as I do, people are going to take this and, and run with it. But before they do that, what do you want clinicians to do with this information at this time? Or would you say, Hey, let's just, I just want you to do more research. Like what do you want people to do right now at the bedside with this information?
1: You know, I, I try to hold my own work up to the same standard that I would hold others work. Um, and you know, for that reason, you know, I, I couldn't quite say that this is I don't think this should be practice changing necessarily, but if you are a clinician or a hospital that continues to use vanxosin, if you are confronted with a patient who you think needs vanxosin, for example, if you had a patient with, uh you know, that had been in the hospital for two weeks and had already seen vanxephepine for a week, and you think, you know, we should probably switch to zosin, you, you should feel much more comfortable in using that combination. Um And perhaps, you know, value, you know, and if you have a patient that's being treated with the combination and you're seeing changes in creatinine, perhaps you know, be a little bit more thoughtful in your evaluation of what's happening with the kidney. Look at other markers, look at the whole clinical picture. Um, and maybe there doesn't need to be a knee jerk, the creatinine's going up, let's stop the zoosin and switch to something else. Um so, uh, yeah, so I think it should be reassuring for folks who have continued to um, to use the combination. And for for others who have, you know, switched totally away from Bank Piptazo, I think, you know, if you have a patient who you think it would be a good combination, you know, a, a good treatment for you, know, you should feel more comfortable in, in doing that.
0: Perfect. that That's phenomenal. And I think my providers are going to love hearing this because. If if there's one thing that they do, they 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 bank in everything that moves. I think if the if they if anything comes in, if it's cap, if it's a UTI, I have to like I say, okay, I understand what you're trying to do here, but let's let's put the big guns away. But they're gonna really enjoy this for the sick patients, and I think that's the key thing that I got out of this. This is a sick population. This is the one that comes in that you have vasopressin on within an hour or so. You already got norepi running at a pretty good rate. They've getting antibiotics. These are the people who you should be okay with. And I think that using creatinine as a soap marker, we I think I always ask myself in the next five to 10 years, will, will something change? And it, it seems to be that this may be something that changes as far as definitions with our guidelines and how we do things in the hospital. Because again, there's, as you mentioned earlier, tons of markers we could use to identify function, but there's also a ton of marker we can use to define injury. So I think that's my big takeaway from all of this is that it's, a, it's an entire picture and we should... Not try to dumb down things and just use correct name. Uh, but again, this is something that I think really going to help people when when they're making guidelines whether or not they should use vancomycin combination or if you're in a you know patient situation where you're going back and forth between cefepime, meropenem, and zosin, I would much rather at this point use vancomycin and, and, and versus adding on meropenem at this point. So that's my that's my big thing that I'm going to take away from this. Do you have any other final thoughts or comments that you want to mention on this topic? uh vanxosin, AKI and biomarkers, or just anything in general?
1: Yeah, well, so the, the one thing I would say is is again, ours is a is a single study in, you know, a critically ill population. And so, you know, an important question is, you know, in our population it had a high baseline risk for acute kidney injury. And so you know an important question will be, you know, how and to what extent these results will can be extrapolated to other populations. So non-critically ill patients. You know, for patients that have a lower baseline risk for acute kidney injury, um, so you know, so that's a, an important uh, part of the next steps of establishing this. And and I agree. I um, I think the future is that that we need to learn how you know to develop algorithms to use these alternative biomarkers in a thoughtful and cost effective way. Um, you know, because particularly in the in the setting of nephrotoxicity. Um, you know, being able to di- differentiate changes in kidney function from actual kidney injury uh, and damage to the tubules is, you know, there's there's many drugs that, you know, bank piptazo, ACE inhibitors, NSAIDs, right? A lot of the key things that we worry about with changes in creatinine, being able to differentiate, you know, functional effects from actual toxic effects would be, you know, very clinically useful. and And, and I think that's, going to be the future.
0: Perfect. Well, again, I I definitely appreciate you coming on. This is, again, one of the papers that as soon as I saw it, it jumped out at me. So I congratulate you and your team from conducting this work because anyone who's involved in research at any degree understands the challenge and the rigor of it. And for you to dedicate a significant portion of your career now to doing and understanding research and publishing a high quality data is is amazing, especially after the couple of years we've went through with COVID quality. Uh, So we really appreciate a good paper when we see it. Um, I thank all you guys for listening to this episode. And as, as always, you can check us out online at farmsoheart.com. Uh, we're available on all social media platforms. Just Google Farm So Heart, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all those things. And of course, guys, if you like this information and you want to get something a little bit more hands on, uh, we have our academy at Pharmacy and Acute Care University. So you can go ahead and check that out. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, but again, Thank you for coming on. And guys, we it the same way we always do. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You're not working at ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard.
1: Closes it. Ozzy his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.